0: Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country.
1: You hold the line
0: faithful to duty, confronting our nation's foes with implacable will.
1: A vital element in keeping the peace is our military so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. You hold the line true to honor. Living by a moral code regardless of who is watching. Our surrender will be voluntary because by that time, we will have been weakened from within spiritually, morally, and economically.
0: Welcome back to another episode of Holding the Line, a podcast dedicated to technology, policy, and its intersection with national security. I'm your host, retired U.S. Navy Commander Guy Snodgrass. And if you think about where we've been in this past week, Obviously, if you're looking at Washington, D.C., if you're thinking about anything political, we've seen as President Biden has now uh, been sworn in. Luckily, like we discussed in the last episode of the podcast, there was no major hijinks or any kind of uh, overt clashes, of course, in the state capitals or in the nation's capital that I know some people had expressed concern about. So it was a very smooth sailing process for the actual inauguration and throughout the nation. And, and in a lot of ways, in a lot of places, I think, there has been this kind of just welcome return to normalcy, meaning that politics doesn't necessarily intrude into your daily life, into your Twitter feed 24-7-365. And in fact, I think one of the funniest guys that I've kind of watched, and maybe tragically funny, has been Dr. Anthony Fauci. And so to have seen him during the Trump administration, to have watched him take the stage to talk about coronavirus – and you knew he was walking a very narrow line. On one side of it, he wanted to provide his best medical advice to the American public. He wanted to make sure that he was truthful and, and stayed loyal to his Hippocratic oath. But on the other hand, he couldn't get cross-threaded too openly with the president that he served, uh, who was leading the executive branch. So you knew every time he spoke, he was navigating this minefield. And so you, you've watched over the last week as he's gone out, he's spoken more publicly and more openly Uh, since the Biden administration has taken over. And it's just been interesting to hear him starting to kind of discuss what that process was like, uh, what it was like, you know, talking about hydroxychloroquine and other stuff. So watching Dr. Fauci has been uh, somewhat interesting, uh, especially for a guy who had to contort himself into a pretzel during the Trump administration. Uh, Speaking of President Biden's uh, national security team, I think one thing that a lot of individuals had been watching was just what would the direction of the American military be, There was a lot of, uh, frankly, discussion, which is healthy, but also a lot of unnecessary hand-wringing over the nomination of retired four-star General Lloyd Austin. Was it appropriate that he be confirmed as Secretary of Defense, especially after Secretary Mattis himself had required a waiver? And in fact, in one of the previous episodes of this very podcast, I had kind of walked the listeners, you the listener, through the process of why there's a waiver in the first place, why is there a seven-year prohibition, on someone who had recently served in the American military being brought in to serve as Secretary of Defense. I received a great piece of feedback and and one of the listeners had said, look, you know, you gave us a lot of feedback. It was a little bit kind of policy wonkish, but hey, bottom line, man, like how do you feel about this? And that was a great point. I've I've tried to stay above the political fray. I've tried to you know, basically be informative without necessarily weighing in with my own opinion. But I will share it now, and that is simply that uh, I've long believed that if you serve some portion of your life in the American military, you shouldn't be discriminated against. And I do believe that there is an element of uh, certainly civilian control of the military. It's a bedrock principle of our nation. But for General Lloyd Austin, who's been out of uniform for years, to suddenly say that he would be unfit to serve as Secretary of Defense because he had had such a long period of time in service to his country, selfless service, many would say, to his country, and suddenly that would disqualify him because he's served within seven years, whereas other Beltway insiders or or people with a lot of money and a lot of industry connections would be better served, leading the American military, I think, is a hollow argument. So yes, there's the bedrock principle of civilian control of the military, but guess what? Both Secretary Mattis and now Secretary Austin are civilians. They're not like their past predecessor, General Marshall, who was actually, because of World War II, still an active serving five-star general when he became Secretary of Defense. And I think that's a very important distinction. So that kind of ties off the discussion we'd had previously about the confirmation of General Lloyd Austin, who now is serving as the latest Secretary of Defense. Uh, one thing that I wanted to just mention, I mean, this is going to be a little bit of a longer episode. I'm very thrilled to have joining me today, author P.W. Singer. Peter Singer has long been an author that I've followed. I remember serving overseas. In fact, I was in the uh, base exchange at Guam Naval Base when I ran across uh, a couple of his books, one of which was Wired for War and really enjoyed it. Talked about autonomy, talked about the use of drones and, and other pieces of equipment for war. Uh, he since has come out with another book, Ghost Fleet. He also had Like War, which was a fantastic look, look at social media. And his most recent book is Burnin' that he co-wrote with August Cole. So uh, really looking forward to this week's conversation with Peter Singer to discuss his book. And that being said, because it is a bit of a longer episode, I'm going to jump right into it. Before I do, just want to remind you, please go ahead, just take the five to 10 seconds it takes, give me a five-star review so we can keep this podcast going, and once again, take the time to write a review, especially if you're on Apple Podcasts. That's the one I tend to follow the most. Uh, I love reading them. And like I said, with the point about General Austin's nomination, uh, if you make a point in there or if you say something that you'd love to see us cover, uh, much more likely to do so because I do check those on a regular basis. So go ahead, give me five stars, give me your feedback, let me know what you think and, and where you'd like to see the podcast go in the future. Now, with that being said, we're going to go ahead and check in with Peter Singer to talk about his most recent project, his book Burn In, and what it means for robotics, for autonomy and artificial intelligence. Peter, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you having me on. So I've been looking forward to this interview for quite some time. So thanks in advance, of course, for making the time. I know that you've been very busy. You, you know, as soon as you Google either your name or Burnin, uh, there's been a ton of positive press for the book, a lot of great reviews. So I appreciate you making the time. Um, And I think for two reasons. One, because Burnin's incredibly topical book for where we are today, as we increasingly consider artificial intelligence and autonomy, especially in its role in our daily lives, but also in national security and implications therein, but also because you had previously written with August Cole, your co-author, a book called Ghost Fleet. Uh, And I had read that actually when I was a commanding officer for a strike fighter squadron in Japan. And I really enjoyed it because again, you used the same type of a vehicle, used a a novel, used a fictional approach to call attention to things that were becoming increasingly relevant and concerning. And in this case, with Ghostly, you looked at the vulnerabilities that were inherent when increasingly, you know, we're turning towards this increasingly digital national security systems and, and the vulnerabilities that that can inject into how we might wage war in the future. And we watch as there's this conflict between the United States and China, And China initially wins until, you know, the the novel develops. So again, for listeners, if you haven't yet checked out Ghost Fleet, I highly recommend that book to you as well. So it served as a good cautionary tale. Now you and August have followed up that success with this most recent novel called Burn-In. And in this novel, you're talking about a partnership that's formed between Laura Keegan, who's a former Marine and now working as an FBI agent and her robotic assistant or her robotic partner called TAMS, which is the Tactical Autonomous Mobility System. So, Peter, with that kind of as the initial backdrop, I'm just curious, you know, how did you want to use this novel? What what were your and August's goals in achieving with this book?
1: So we had a double goal with it, and it um, in many ways came out of the experience with Ghost Fleet, where um, with Ghost Fleet, our primary goal at the start was to recreate for people the fun reading experience that we had had with early Tom Clancy. We um, didn't know each other growing up, but we had both independently, you know, read books like Red Storm Rising on the, for me, it was in the back of my mom's station wagon on the way to the beach, uh, actually Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. And um, for August, he lived uh, West Coast and, you know, he would describe reading it out in um, Washington State. And so with Ghost Fleet, the origin point was entertainment, And yet it ended up having um, actually far greater policy impact than any of my nonfiction books. And, you know, my nonfiction books had done well. They were on the military reading list and things like that. But Ghost Fleet was the one that um, it struck a chord. And, you know, it... got put on the reading list um but also you know i was invited to brief it everywhere from the white house situation room to uh the tank and the and the joint chiefs um it uh sparked um multiple different investigations both dod to gao ones to um there were war games named after it there was a 3.6 billion dollar navy ship program named after it um we briefed uh over 75 different units on its real world lessons. Uh, You know, in in units that ranged from um, JSOC to Navy submarine, I mean, it was all over the place. So it just struck us, wow, you know, you could have this combination of what we called useful fiction. It could be entertainment, but it also could pack an idea behind it that could be useful to people. Um, And so with Burn In, we tried to bring those two things together in a deliberate way. We, one, found a story that we, you know, you, as a creator, you, you sort of feel compelled to tell, you, you create characters, you, you want people to meet them, you're excited by that. But we also chose what we thought was the most important slash least understood issue out there, which is AI. Uh, it's, it's, and, you know, I can back that up with hard data over 91% of leaders say AI is the most important game changing technology out there. And that's true. Whether you're looking at defense strategy to fortune 500 companies, you name it, but only 17% self report. Hey, I even have the basics of understanding it, let alone it's applications, it's, it's dilemmas and all that.
0: Yeah. So I like how you capture that, right? Useful fiction. I think you hit the nail on the head. When you talk to prolific readers, there are many who will seek out biographies or autobiographies you know, uh, to, to gain a better understanding or a depth of history. But what you typically hear is that for a lot of people, that's not what they're excited by. So as you and August have done where you can take a fictional approach and write something that's compelling and exciting and you can easily get immersed into. But then along the way, like you said, it's useful. You're learning something new. You're you're it's. Uh, I've seen multiple reviews that I thought were spot on, where they talked about how it was a very well-researched fictional book uh, because you're folding in a lot of these concepts that are staring us in the face in our near future. Earlier, when you mentioned JSOC, you know, we have a very wide ranging audience. So for those of you listening, that's the Joint Special Operations Command, uh, and that's where a lot of the special operators, as the name implies, reside. So that could be your Delta Force, your Navy SEALs, and others
1: who are doing the, the, the group that got Bin Laden and the like. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, famously.
0: So one thing I thought was neat too about uh, the vehicle you've used when you write these novels is, like with Ghost Fleet, when it's not just about the vulnerabilities inherent with an increasingly digital or all digital system and command and control systems, it's also a great reminder. And I know we talked about this in my own squadron about getting back to the basics, you know, and that's kind of how the novel progresses. As as everything that's technologically laden starts to fall apart, it's okay. Well, let's get back to the things that we know we're good at and that we can do in a technologically denied environment and so I know we're going to get it to to burn in but I just wanted to make another hook which is uh, as an F-18 pilot one of the things I knew and and most of my uh, people I flew with always said was we were called HUD cripples for heads-up display because you had all the information right there in front of your face and when when that thing went it was almost like you know a second of panic we were like how in the heck do I fly this plane without a heads-up display and of course then you could fall back on your training so I love the fact that in your novels uh, you kind of remind the readers, hey, back to basics. There's a way to get things done without a lot of this technology that we have in front
1: of us. Well, you know, it's interesting that you hit that because um, what it points to is what we were talking about earlier is the research side. And, you know, so these are fiction. You're creating fictional worlds. You're hoping to build entertaining characters. You know, you need to bring the reader all the way through the story. It has to be entertaining. But um, we build them in the same way you'd build a nonfiction book. Uh, So, you know, it might be the latest data and gathering reports you know here's you know Amazon's plan for how we're going to use drones uh to you know here's an actual cybersecurity vulnerability that hackers have surfaced so that when that bad thing happens in the book it's like no this is drawn from the real world but the other thing that you're doing is you're interviewing people you're meeting with the real people who wrestle with it uh, and you're doing it for both the large macro inspiration, but also those little tiny details that carry it through. And so, you know, for for Ghost Fleet, it was um, there were actually marine pilots that we interviewed. So if, if you know, it's great to hear that it resonated with someone because we're drawing from that. Um, in Burnin, it was everything from, you know, AI scientists to um someone who worked on, we're going to plot spoil a little bit here, but someone who worked on Washington, D.C.'s water system. So when the bad thing happens, guess what? It's actually drawn from people, you know, what they say over beer is like, oh man, you can't believe we did X. Um, We get to carry that through. And that that to me goes back to this notion of, you know, the combination of use and fiction is that um, you carry across the important lesson but it also, I think, you know, for me personally, it makes it not just more compelling, but, you know, kind of grabs the reader by the throat. Because when that bad thing, when that scene plays out, there's not that, oh, my goodness, could it happen? It's like, wow, it really could happen. And what's different with Burnin, and, and frankly, what we've been able to see of any other project out there, is that it actually has the endnote reference there. To document it. So you can actually see, you know, just like in a nonfiction book, there's that little number at the end of the sentence that can take you to a reference. You don't have to go to it if you don't want to. You can keep on reading. But if you do, hey, this documents, this really is Amazon's patent or this really is the cybersecurity vulnerability. And so that's to me kind of the the fun and utility and frankly, a little bit of the scare of it.
0: Yeah, well I like that too because you're leaving Easter eggs for your readers. So if someone is captivated by your book and says, "Man, I really wish there was a way to new, to learn more or understand more about this topic." Like you said, they can flip right to the back of the book and then uh jump to additional reading. So that's going to help educate not only in, uh, inform and entertain but educate, you know, thousands and possibly millions of readers around the world. And obviously the book has done very well so far and will no doubt continue to do so. So I'm guessing, you know, as we talk about burning now more fully, it's all about autonomy. It's all about the rise of artificial intelligence. Where do you, you know, so combining both your experience with Burnin, but also your background as a strategist and as someone who's a futurist and a technologist, where do you see this taking us? We've got several initiatives ongoing right now. You've got the national security commission on artificial intelligence. You have any number of large corporations that are aggressively pursuing artificial intelligence. And that's just here in the United States. You've also got international competitors, primarily Russia and China and others who are, who are really actively seeking to exploit the capabilities inherent in artificial intelligence. Where do you see this taking us as a nation in the near future?
1: So the subtitle of the book uh, essentially reveals that. And it's, uh, the subtitle of Burn In is a novel of the real robotic revolution. And what that's, you know, plucking away at is that we're actually on the 100 year anniversary of the creation of the word robot itself. It was um, a made up word derived from the Czech word for servitude, Uh, and it was for a play in 1920 called RUR. And it was used to describe this then crazy idea of mechanical servants who then wised up, they grew intelligent, and then they rise up, kill all humans, and ever since, for the last 100 years, that's the way we've thought of robotics and AI running through, you know, science fiction. Um, you know, whether it's the Terminator movies, Matrix, how you name it. And that's also infiltrated the way that we talk and think about them in the real world. Uh, So you think about, you know, all the discussion around um, the so-called killer robots problem. And and that's, you know, we've seen everything from multi-billion dollar research programs to debate at the United Nations about it. And um, what Burnin basically, you know, uses the research to carry across is hitting this, hey, there's an irony. The technology seemingly out of science fiction coming is coming true but it's actually not the vision that sci-fi painted for us it's rather an industrial revolution and so baked into burn-in are over 300 different examples of how ai robotics automation internet of things and you know, all of these different elements of it are going to be used you know in business by the police by the military in your home your kids toys you name it and what this points to is that it's an industrial revolution it's a lot like what played out with mechanization uh, another parallel might be electricity where you know there's things that are evidently electrified light bulbs but there's also electricity kind of running behind the scenes through your through your house that's the same thing with ai and automation it's gonna create all these new, wonderful applications. We're actually you know, seeing examples of them right now. Many of them um, sped up by the coronavirus pandemic, uh, you know, whether it's um, using uh, robots to deliver groceries, to uh, pandemic policing, to, I mean, y- you name it. But just like any other industrial revolution, it'll also yield all of these ripple effects, you know, social, political, legal, security and they might be cyber security or they might be overall national security so essentially what we're um, at the very start of right now is an industrial revolution but of a kind that we've never had before so it has sort of echoes of what you saw you know with mechanization steam engines and the like but it's also different in that this tool is not one where the story is you know a farmer puts down their shovel and then go works in an assembly line this tool is intelligent it's always learning it's always advancing and so that has even added questions again that present themselves in everything from war to business to you know thinking about new laws and so the story you know basically we follow a character through their journey And we get to sort of experience different elements, different parts of the city, different parts of these dilemmas. Um, And ultimately, you know, where I'd end on with this is that um, you have this overall, you know, sharing that information, but there's also an underlying theme to it. And it's just like, you know, Moby Dick is in a story about the hunt for a whale, right? You know, it has other elements to it underneath it. Uh, For Burnin, one of the core questions is this issue of human machine teaming. You know, seemingly a very sci-fi thing, human-machine teaming, uh, and you know what does that look like? What is the role for the human versus the machine? How do they come together? When do they not? This is seemingly something out of sci-fi, and yet it is a core question right now for everything from you know the future of uh, military aviation. To, um, I was meeting with a group of, um, or I was a remote meeting, illustrating this technology change, with a group of uh, Wall Street investors. Their core question is how do they balance between humans and machines and investing? Same thing you see in medicine right now. Same thing when we think about the education for our kids. What roles are going to be there for them in the future? What are going to be automated? How does that change your training? So it's this underlying question of how do we flow through all the different questions of human machine teaming moving forward?
0: yeah and I like that 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 gets back to what I directly observed when I was working in the Pentagon, which is this this move towards the loyal wingman concept for aircraft or how can you use artificial intelligence on the battlefield or how can you use it for i mean and so what's going to be interesting with artificial intelligence and through artificial intelligence increasing autonomy is that it becomes a fabric for pretty much everything in life, much like you know if you think back. Way back in the day, I mean, people always talk about, hey, this is as great as sliced bread. Well, look, sliced bread is simply sliced bread, but electricity underpins everything. It underpins your air conditioning, your ability, you know, for us to have this conversation right now, the ability to do so much. I mean, it's a fabric of our daily lives. And if it were to just simply disappear, that would alter everything and artificial intelligence will rapidly assume that type of a stature and a role that it hasn't already, because it's going to become pervasive as you've noted in across everything, children's toys, the way that uh, insurance claims are, are adjudicated. I mean, it's just going to be everywhere all the time, very pervasive. And it reminds me, I'm actually rereading a series I'd read previously by Dan Simmons called Hyperion and uh, in Hyperion. It's basically a little bit of a, of a novel where it talks about how artificial intelligence way into the future, hundreds of years into the future became so sentient that it basically just kind of pulled away from humanity, started its own culture. Now it's, it can work cooperatively with humanity, but it's not, it no longer takes its marching orders from humanity. And I think there, that's an interesting parallel
1: there. And I think what's interesting to ping off of that is a couple of things. One is that, um, Contrary to you know the science fiction visions of AI, which consistently keep coming back to you know one singular superintelligence, you know the 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 HAL uh, or, or you know uh, Skynet or whatever it is, is that in our real world, it's coming in lots of different forms by lots of different users. So you have you know AI applied into everything from Amazon um, uh, purchasing to military navigation to my kids' toys, apps, you name it. It's the same thing for the physical manifestation of it, the robotics. They come in lots of different sizes, shapes, and forms. You know, everything from teeny tiny systems that are, uh, you know, fit on the tips of your fingers uh, all the way to, you know, large, massive ones. Uh, For example, there's ones used in um, uh, these mines that are basically dump trucks the size of uh, four houses. And what that points to is a couple of things. The first is you have these very different um, concepts and models of how to you know, think about human machine teaming. And you, you mentioned one of them. One model is um, robot wingman. It's, it's your partner, it's your peer, you're working together. And it might be like a wingman uh, akin to um, a, a pilot. Uh, there's another version where it's like, oh, it's like a police dog. It's the human and the machine working together, but they're a team. There's, at the other end of the spectrum is complete delegation. I send them off to do their own job, swarming uh, delivery robots or, or whatnot. And again, this same question plays out for, you know, are you choosing your military doctrine on how you're gonna fight against China? Are you choosing how you're gonna battle a disease like coronavirus? Are you thinking about how you're gonna do logistics and delivery, whether it's logistics and delivery for the military, logistics and delivery for um, uh, delivering drinks to people's homes? There's, There's all these different models out there and we're gonna figure out which one is the best, which one's not, but then the other element that you hit is the idea of, you know, to be useful fiction in our, our approach is that it has to be within a realistic time frame, so that's why we never set our stories um, multiple generations ahead. And actually, it, it's a um, uh, lesson kind of pulled from Arthur C. Clarke, who was a you know great science writer. A uh, scientist came up with the idea of artificial satellites, but is even better science fiction writer. And he talked about how you know once you move more than a generation ahead science kind of moved into the realm of magic right and so for us we try and ground our stories before you get where that okay the science you know no longer mm-hmm. ground it's kind of magical we're going to come up with the the widget that solves everything instead our rule is every technology in it has to be drawn from the real world and so that gives you you know i think a really you know rich space to play with but also Um, it allows people to connect it to their current plans, their current world.
0: So you touched on something I wanted to to address, and that is this balance that people developing artificial intelligence have to strike in some form or fashion. And I think uh, what country you're in has bearing on how you balance this, and also what role you play in society. And that is this balance between the development of an ethical approach, the regulations that are going to underpin the development of artificial intelligence and then you also have the other side of that scale which is going to be the headlong rush into the future develop the technology and its capabilities as quickly as possible because it's better to have the capability and then determine how you best want to use it than to slow yourself down and I'm curious where do you fall on that spectrum.
1: So you put your fingers on, on two different things there. One is uh, another one of these underlying themes of the book, uh, which is that essentially with the rollout of, of AI, the Internet of Things, again, for military, but you know in your home, in your business, that there is now, you might think of it as sort of competing poles, competing pressures. On one hand, there is privacy. On the other hand, there is security. On the other, there is convenience, and then there is profit. And that whether you are thinking about a um, app for your kid to um, coronavirus contact tracing, uh, it will lie somewhere between these competing poles and you decide sort of which one to pull it towards. So essentially, the greater the privacy that you have, there's a trade-off with, for example, the profit for the company. There's a trade-off with, for example, uh, public security. So in a China, they're completely pulling it towards the pull of public security. They see AI as a way to maintain control over a large population. Um, and when you say public, turn, when you say
0: public security, you mean uh, security for basically the Chinese Communist Party the, and for the, the state. state,
1: right? Yes, exactly. But you can also think about it, for example, in health security. Think about a, a coronavirus tracing app. Um, it uh, if we could pull all of your health information and. All of your movements and compile that all together, it would add to health security. However, it would be at the expense of privacy. Um, similarly, uh, your, that data would, um, in some situations, be massively profitable, that poll, but again, it would tug away at privacy. And so, what I'm kind of getting at is um, you will, whatever the technology it sort of lies within that spectrum. And there's different tugs at it. And either you are the one deciding where you are most comfortable. I choose more towards privacy. My kids apps, I choose more towards privacy versus their fun of them, back and forth, right? And if you're not choosing, someone else is choosing for you, Uh, whether it's the company, whether it's the government. Um, And so having an awareness of that is is sort of an essential uh, issue moving forward. And one of the things is that what we see playing out is two different models. There's sort of the the, uh, Beijing model where the government decides for you, uh, highly centralized mass data collection. um, And then you have the U.S. system, which is sort of more like a cacophony and um, different collectors of data different locales that you go so whether you go to a train station versus a university versus uh you walk inside a um private business like a a bank there'll be different elements collecting information on you sometimes you'll be the one choosing what to share or not other times it will be what is the policy of that entity these you know what we're just talking about here it sounds again very sci-fi but it's a elemental part of, again, whether you're deciding government policy or your own policy um, in this. And so it's, it's, a, it's, it's something that, you know, we try and carry forward uh, as we follow a character on a journey into these, you know, what are both familiar but changed spaces, whether it's, again, a train station or a Starbucks,
0: Well, that's another thing I like about your novel, right? Is the fact that uh, you raise these elements, you raise these questions. And even though you're using fiction, once again, it's useful fiction, because it's forcing the reader to take some time to say, wait a second, like, okay, this is very plausible. Like you mentioned, you don't go beyond a generation into the future. So this is something that's real, it's tangible, you can see hints of these things in your everyday life. Uh, just like the interaction with Tams, just like uh, some of the, the problems that are occurring in the novel. And you say, yeah, that, that, there are, there's resonance to what I'm experiencing today. Uh, this is familiar to me. Wow, is this right around the corner? And I say that there was a great New York Times article maybe four or five months ago where it laid out in pretty stark detail the, that tug you just described between privacy and, I guess, uh, larger scale security. And when I say larger scale, it gets a little bit closer to that Beijing model because of the Patriot Act and other, uh, you, know, uh, rash, uh, you know, other mechanics to be able to get to national security. And that is uh, data aggregation. I remember being a grad student in Boston back in 2000 and that's when quote unquote big data was making its rise. And, and everyone was thrilled that that storage devices were becoming so ubiquitous, so cheap. It was a commodity that you could start to just basically hoover up and collect tons of information. But what they hadn't yet cracked was what do you do with it? And then you see a exponential rise in processing capability. And of course, now we're into autonomy and artificial intelligence where you have the algorithmic approaches to where you can manipulate that information. And so you've got kind of that trifecta that's that's really right at the heart of what you're describing, which is you have the access to low cost, inexpensive ability to to not only hoover up, but retain for almost an indefinite period of time data. So for you, Peter Singer, it's like we could you know, potentially have decades worth of your life's data and history and where you've been and what you've done. It doesn't just magically evaporate. It's, it's always there. So I could maybe 10 years in the future start to dial it back and say, okay, well, where were you 10 years ago? What were you doing? What were you looking at? And I think that's, that's something that people haven't necessarily thought, given a lot of thought over too, but it's something that is, that is just the reality of where we are today.
1: And so what the addition of AI to this big data collection allows is that it allows you to not only go back in time and, you know, build that pattern, but we can also move forward and predict behavior, whether it is uh, on scale or your individual behavior, and then even more, we can start to influence that behavior and it might be in ways that are um very evident to the person that they're being influenced so you know we have this opening scene in a train station and you're uh the person walking through the train station there are ads popping up that are you know aiming right at them uh, which again seems totally sci-fi but, you know, it's coming. And so, you know, when, when you, oh, if you just walk 20 feet over here, we've got, a, you know, your favorite latte waiting for you. Uh, and when you go, oh, man, I really do need a latte. Is it because <laughs> you really thought it or you were influenced by that? So there's, of course, you know, more pernicious ones where it won't be evident to you. We see some of that starting to play out in politics. But the great thing with fiction is that you can populate this with people, with characters, and you get to see how they and the characters, of course, kind of represent us um, in the different roles that we play. How they experience it, and you know what they're thinking about it, right? So, and that's why you know I, I just I'm really excited for people to meet Keegan, who's this main character at the middle of it, and she's you know wrestling with all these different identities that we have, right? So you know she's got her job, but she's also married and you know the marriage has difficulties like a real marriage does too she's a parent and so you know each of these situations that she's put into she's sort of balancing between them and thinking about them and reacting to them and um to me it uh you know you have these big Hollywood scenes of things that play out, you know, catastrophic, cool, big, you know, DC essentially held hostage by a series of cool cyber attacks, you name it. But There's also these little moments in it that, you know, for me as a, as a parent kind of resonate more. And one, for example, is when she and her kid go into a Starbucks and the greeter, you know, greets her and her daughter by name. And she has this sort of processing moment of do they know our names because, well, we come here every weekend or because face recognition and it was, you know, given to them. And it's just sort of like, oh, and guess what? That's coming.
0: Yeah, well, I think it's uh, some people might be alarmed to know how much of it it's already here. It just hasn't been uh, commercialized, if you will, in a way that's that's manifest. And uh, that, like you mentioned with the train station example, where you know that latte is being displayed to you. It, you know, we're at the stage now where where companies know what your preferences are, and they've been able to amass a significant amount of information. And to your point, with analytics and with algorithmic capabilities, you can predict what you might want based on your pattern of life. Uh, and that's another thing I think a lot of of the listeners may not naturally think about It's just the fact that guess what I mean. There, is not only, there, are, there are companies that specialize in location-based services, so they're tracking your position minute by minute, and they can do that through your cell phone, they can do that through other devices you interact with. That information is available. I think the other thing that's interesting too and fascinating to me from a national security perspective is that uh, nothing has prevented these companies that are amassing various types of data to start pooling their resources. And I think that's where we're going to start seeing uh, this head into the future is it's not just any one thing about you. It's that a lot of the tapestry of you and your life and your preferences and what you do and how you do it is going to start being put together into this like consistent amalgamation where uh, you'll have one source to go to, but it'll have a lot of different types of, of access of information about you, whether it's your health record, like you mentioned, whether it's your, where you've been, what you've done, what you're likely to do in the future. Um, I guess I am curious. One, one question I want to ask specifically is how far away do you think we are from this type of reality? And I ask that because we had recently concluded a three-part series on artificial intelligence. We had a, a senior vice president from Booz Allen Hamilton who's been working artificial intelligence for decades. Uh, so he's a specialist in his field. We had talked with Bob Work about the third offset strategy. He's someone who's given a lot of thought over uh, and we'd also talked to a retired Marine Corps Lieutenant Colonel named Joe Larson, who'd been the deputy director for Project Maven. So he's also had a very direct applicability and used artificial intelligence applications in the uh, in theater and in wartime environments. So one thing that seemed consistent across those conversations were, yes, artificial intelligence can do some really neat things, but their specific use. They have to be very narrowly scoped, very well defined. We're still quite a ways off from what people would term as general purpose AI which would be something like TAMS, where it can not only use natural language processing to talk to you, but it can make intelligence decisions. It can access data repositories and and be semi-autonomous. So I'm curious, but you've done a lot of research into this field. You've written numerous books on this topic. If you had to make a prediction, how, how many years do you think we are from having a general purpose AI that could roughly interact with us in this type of fashion?
1: So I'm smiling because I'm going to ultimately dodge your question. <laughs> uh, I'm not, i not going to put a specific year on it, but, um, and, and we in the book chose not to have a specific year. Right. Um, and one is because of, uh, that allows you to avoid the, you know, Arthur C. Clark 2001 problem, right. You know, after 2001, it feels archaic. Um, but more importantly, because um, if you're being honest about it and, and pulling from the different research data, you basically sort of have like a, a spectrum of projections. And you know some are short-term, some are long-term, but they basically sort of have that natural curve that comes out roughly a generation ahead and um so we don't have a specific date of when the book is set but there are sort of reveals right so the main character talks about um you know playing with an ipad when she was a kid there's um she you know in college uh went to uh millennial night parties much like uh you know we're gonna date you and i but like in college we probably went to like 80s parties right it wasn't 80s music but it was that sort of you know echoing back um there's certain music that she mentions her parents listen to uh nine inch nails right and so uh that sort of sets it And, and again that's not peter singer's projection that's from pulling all of the different projections that are out there but one of the most important things and again there is a parallel of this that we see in history whether it's military history or um business history is that There is the question of um, what the technology can do and how that moves forward. But there's also the impact of other forces, whether it's, you know, look back at, you know, the impact of the Great Depression or the accelerating effect of World War II. Um, So the same thing actually is playing out right now is um, to put it in, in shorthand. The impact of the coronavirus pandemic is it took a series of trends and technologies that were already in place and drastically accelerated them. So this move towards ever more advanced and ever more deployed out there AI automation and like, it was already happening, right? And a lot of the projections that people had were based on kind of, you know, that trend. But now we've injected this new thing that in some areas, it sent timelines, it jumped them ahead. So as an example, um, I'm very familiar with the field of uh, telemedicine. Telemedicine, that industry thought we would be 10 years from now. What it took roughly two months to jump ahead to. So in their pre-coronavirus projections, they said, you know, where we think our industry is going to be 10 years from now, they jump forward two months. And when you You say telemedicine,
0: when you say telemedicine, you're talking about the ability for medical practitioners to render assistance via like we're like we're talking right now via video teleconference or over the phone.
1: Exactly. And, 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 and it's, its use, its level of use um, across different practices, et cetera. Um, there's other areas where we went, frankly, well past what anyone in industry thought would happen. Distance learning. Um, uh, distance work is another that's at a higher level. You can also see this in terms of the rollout of certain technologies um where there were use cases that were seen as either way off in the distance or something that wouldn't happen in the US anytime soon and they get pushed out rapidly. Um you may remember, for example, these you know stories that were coming out of China, news stories in um the early part of this year it was like, Wow, they're you know, using a robot to um Uh, clean subways they're using a robot to police a curfew how very science fiction and then you know happens here a couple months later Um, a version of this would be grocery delivery Um, it, It. I live in Washington, D.C. area. There was already a, um, a robot that was actually, it's, it's one that was in the um, opening scene of Burn In. You know, it sort of gives you this feel, It set in the future, there's a little robot driving down the sidewalk. We mm-hmm. drawn that from a real world system. That real world system that was futuristic is right now out in Washington delivering groceries. To so this broader issue that you talked about in terms of data collection, The the scale of um, surveillance and of different types of forms at a personal level and at a societal level, drastically accelerating, going to be even more accelerated by public health pressures. When we think about the information that's now going to be collected on people, um, you know, temperature, movement, um, medical history, who will be able to access that information, not just the government, but a business and the like. And again, you know, the, the point is massively accelerated. And what that also means is that we will get all the good of it. And I need to be, you know, this is scary to some people, but there is so much positivity from the rollout of these technologies. You know, again, it will um, help deal with a medical crisis. It will make your personal life so much more enjoyable. It's going to be awesome, cool apps. Um, Oh, by the way, if you care about things like climate change, the the, um, smart city is one of the best ways of going after it and energy efficiency. But they also come with all of these issues, again, social questions, legal questions, political questions, cybersecurity vulnerabilities. Another way of putting it is all the dilemmas and problems that our characters face and burn in because the technology got accelerated, it also means all those storylines just got accelerated too. We're going to be dealing with the things that the characters deal with much more rapidly as well.
0: So I guess I'd love to hear a little bit more about your thoughts on that kind of a topic, right? We've, we've talked about that seesaw or that push-pull effect that exists between the amazing future that lies in front of us, what all access to all this information about you and me and others can provide, like you just mentioned, man, it's going to be great. You're going to have apps that are going to be so, so much more relevant and useful to you, but it comes at, that, it comes at the expense of privacy and possibly personal security. And so I want to hear a little bit more about that because one thing that I, you know, that struck me throughout my tenure with the U.S. government was, I mean, over the course of twenty years, I received no fewer than a dozen notifications on official Department of Defense letterhead saying, essentially, we regret to inform you your personal information was compromised, uh, you were hacked during the uh, a moment in time when, you know, they, they were stealing everyone's clearance information. I mean, so there, so. The danger is that when it comes to your digital life, once that information has been taken, it's it's basically gone for good, or at least it can be exploited for good, uh, meaning for a long period of time, because your social security number, which is what most of us rely on these days, does not change. Your date of birth does not change. Many of your physical characteristics or your background will not change. It's not as easy as saying, I'd like a new credit card number, please, and then therefore you've got some measure of security returned to you. When people, are able to gain access to a lot of your personally identifiable information and information about you and your pattern of life. That is, that is something that once it's been taken, it's not restorable. You can't put that genie back in the bottle. And does that concern you?
1: Yes. um, But we also need to keep our eye on how, data, and more importantly, the broader internet is changing. So if Ghost Fleet, you know, the subtitle of, you know, novel of the next world war, it's a story of um, what a US China war might look like. And linking back to what you brought up, um, it plays out, hey, what are the possibilities and perils that come from that kind of information theft, and how a foreign power might exploit that, and how it will allow a future war to play out in some ways, you know, parallels to World War I and World War II, but in other ways, you know, fundamentally different and major challenges and threats for the United States. Burn-in though takes first that setting um, domestic and second looks at, okay, it's not just about the data that's being shared, It's about how we're lashing up all of the things out there, whether it's smart home, smart car, uh, the robots in your factory, the robots in your home, the robots driving down the street. And what that means is that um, a couple of things. The first is the political effects of this um, are amazingly challenging um you know to put it bluntly to go through an industrial revolution is you know traumatic for society it's traumatic overall it's traumatic at the individual level people lose jobs it changes the way they think about themselves the way they think about themselves as a husband the way they think about themselves as a father and so you get to you know play that out it changes the politics um what people are arguing about, the kind of politicians they support or not. And so, you know, we get to see that 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 impact of a of a nation changing. Um, Oh, by the way, I believe even more challenging because all this is playing out in the United States that's more divided than it has been in generations, you know, economically divided, politically, you name it. Um, And so major, major issues playing out with that. We get to see that through the lens of the characters. But the other part is, it's not just about, oh, uh, someone sto- observed or stole my data. They stole my credit card information, my social security, or the design for a jet fighter so that they can fly something similar to what the United States has. It's now that you can cause kinetic change via cyber means. There are cyber attacks that are not about theft, but about changing the world physically. And you know, not to plot spoil too much, but basically we show how a single individual can carry out in some cases old crimes in new ways. You can murder someone, but never step inside their home. Mm-hmm. But you could also carry out spectacularly new types of attacks that um, you know an al-Qaeda, a, a Soviet Union couldn't dream of. Uh, oh, but maybe, you know, again, plot spoil, they have parallels from, say, the Bible and the, what would digital versions of the 10 plagues look like, but hitting a real city like a Washington, D.C. And then, oh, by the way, hey, here's the little research endnote at the bottom of it. So when that water system, when that flood happens, when that equivalent of, you know, each of these plagues play out, hold it that's a real vulnerability that really could happen. Someone really could do that. And so, you know, to me, that's the, the similarity, but also the difference of what we have moving forward. And, but you know, at the end of this is that go back to where we started our conversation. Hopefully, you know, it's, it's entertaining as hell gives people, you know, I'll plot spoil again. There's, there's no pandemic in the story. gives you that, you know, escapism. Let's, let's, you know, enjoy, you know, not thinking about coronavirus for a while, but, go to the useful side of it. Hopefully it's useful to people and that um, by the end of the story, they get the basics of, okay, here's how AI works. Here's some of the ways that it's going to be um, used in in my personal life, my business. Maybe I work in national security, whatever. Um, Here's some of the dilemmas that come out of it. And I didn't have to read a boring white paper or sit through a PowerPoint brief to get it. So I get that kind of utility. But then finally, Hopefully, it's not just an act of prediction, but also a little bit of prevention. Hey, I didn't like what played out in that scene. Here's what I or my organization can do about it. I didn't like the way it played out in the home uh, in that situation as a parent. Okay, here's what I can think about it To Maybe I work in government or policy. Here's, you know, I didn't like that scene. Okay, wow, there's this thing we can fix it. We can solve it. And so that's, that's again, goes back to this, you know, bringing together the different genres, hopefully kind of, you know, accomplishing different things and kind of the takeaway of it. You and I were talking about how we're both parents, uh, before all this, um, I liken it to, um, sneaking fruit and veggies into the morning smoothie. You You get that good taste, but also there's some good stuff snuck in there as well. You know, for some people, it's just the yummy taste. For other people, it's hey, the nutritional value. Hopefully, this is a, the book equivalent of that.
0: Yeah, Sarah, my wife, uh, we had some friends and family over this weekend. And in fact, when she made her chicken enchiladas, she used uh, ground up or, or pureed kale inside of it. Just for that's exactly what you're saying. Sneak in the good stuff, you know, surround it. Kale with is stuff.
1: snuck into so much, whether <laughs> it's smoothies, whether it's enchiladas, you name it. Um, and yeah, it's, and, and, you know, I can't tell you the amount of kale that my kids have had that they didn't realize they were having. Um, uh, yeah.
0: well, like you said, I mean, and it, and not only that, but sometimes life begins to imitate art. We, before, like you said, before we started recording and we were just kind of shooting the breeze, we were talking about another movie called minority report. And I think there's an example of sometimes where life can imitate art where, you know, that was a very futuristic film about predictive capabilities for law enforcement. Some of the technology they showed, people said, wow. I mean, I remember at the time watching that movie in the theaters, people saying like, that's incredible what you could do with high definition displays, augmented reality, virtual reality. You know, that, I mean, could that ever be possible? And then you fast forward, whatever it's been now, probably about a decade. And yeah, a lot of those technologies are actually with this. So using your, your novel as a vehicle is great. So I've got basically two last questions for you. I know we're running out of time. Uh, I think you've got a great website, you and August, what you put together, it's at burninbook.com. So I highly recommend listeners go check it out. There's a lot of great information about the authors, about the book. One of the things that stood out to me, which I thought was great and touches on your role as a also as an educator, is you had a list of basically a question bank. Hey, hey, if you want to facilitate a discussion about Burnin the novel, if you want to facilitate a discussion on autonomy, maybe these are some questions. So I actually want to ask you one of these. Uh, and if you're willing to at least maybe give us a couple of thoughts, but one of the last questions you posed was you've been asked by the president to stop the worst things from burn in from coming true. What three things would you suggest? So not to give away the plot, but do you have a couple elements from burn in that you feel strongly you'd, you want to say Mr. Or Mrs. President, here are the things that I would, I would recommend you to really engage on.
1: Oh, wow. It, and it's funny that, um, section at the top, it says, you know, these are some suggested (laughs) questions for book clubs and discussion groups, but also, for evil professors. That's looking, right. You've uh, been more. Uh, class assignments. And so you've played the evil professorslash podcast host role here. Um, what are some things that we can do? Yeah. You know, again, the, the difference of this book is, you know, it's not like a, um, a memorandum or whatever. You know, it ends at the bottom with three bullet points. It, it takes people through this journey. Um, for myself, I, three things I would toss out there um, to avoid the bad side of this and again you know one of the other themes of the book is how sort of the utopian and dystopian views of the future there's like a really fine line between them right you know silicon valley keeps pushing out things that it think are like you know, utopian and then it it executes in a, in a dystopian way you know um a fun example would be like the smart toilet you know i'm like uh, maybe it solves all these problems i'm creeped out by it um, so, uh, real rapidly, three things that I think could set us on a more positive journey. Um, one, uh, shoring up Internet of Things vulnerabilities. We're basically recreating all of the mistakes we made with the security of the Internet in its first generation as we link up things, whether it's smart refrigerator, smart car, um, smart thermostat, you name it. We're not baking security in. I want to give the data behind this. One study found that um, over 90% of Internet of Things traffic is unencrypted, so if you intercept it, you get to read it easily enough. And over 60% of the devices that are linked up, again, whether it's smart car, smart refrigerator, you name it, over 60% are vulnerable to medium or high impact level cyber attacks. So baking insecurity security in the Internet of Things, which of course needs you need to have uh, government policy, um, sort of government and business working together to raise security. I particularly um, would point people to the Cyber Solarium Commission, which is this bipartisan um, commission that has a series of recommendations to implement that. So, for don't first ish, let's solve that. Second issue would be um, uh, a AI strategy for the nation that is um realistic and on a realistic time frame to uh, you know we're going through this this industrial revolution and yet um too many leaders imagine it as again the sci-fi either you know it's, it's robot revolt or it's just way off in the distance um for example the um steve mnuchin the secretary of the treasury said that um the, the current administration didn't have to think about issues of automation and AI because, um, it, he, and he said, it's, quote, not on our radar screen, end quote, because it's not going to be an issue for, quote, 50 to 100 years, end quote. That's his quote. That is demonstrably wrong. Even looking backwards, um, over 80% of manufacturing job loss in the U.S. over the last generation was because of automation. So, you know, we've got the whole discourse about outsourcing. Hey, it was automation that caused 80% of that problem. Moving forward, again, whether you're looking at banking, medicine, manufacturing, you name it, it's not a 50 to 100 year time horizon. It's playing out in your and my um, lifetime and um, it's playing out now. It's playing five, ten five, 10 years from now. And so you need a larger strategy on that that says, okay, how do we go after it across multiple different agencies Um, a smart strategy. And then the final third one is an element to that strategy, but a larger part of it is updating the American education system for the new economy. Um, Look, we already know our kids are behind their international competitors right now, but one of the, the really striking parts of it is the disconnect between what we train kids for and the actual jobs that will be there for them. Um, and so, and this goes back to you know one of the themes of the book of like you know human machine teaming is that there are jobs for humans there are roles, but you have to have the right skill sets for them and there 's an incredible mismatch between what we teach and it, oh by the way it 's not just about elementary school and I use you know in, in high school I use kids it 's even in um, current worker job retraining programs there's this you know h- horrendous example of um Uh, factory workers in Indiana who, you know, lost their jobs to automation. And so they put them in a job retraining program. You know what they retrain them to be? Truck drivers, Mm -hmm. the next thing that's going to be automated. So, you know, and so the point is that third thing would be updating our education system. If we do those three things, we don't avoid all the bad stuff, but we definitely set ourselves on a more positive journey. And oh, by the way, each of those three things they're relatively doable. I'm, mean, you know, I'm not saying create world peace. They're, they're relatively, you know, each of them you could move forward in a. Um, you wouldn't get to the final, but you could, you could move forward positively each one of them. Oh, by the way, each one of them also could be done in a bipartisan manner. There's nothing kind of inherently right or left about those three things.
0: Right. Uh, your comment about Steve Mnuchin's quote. I was going to say it surprises me because of his background in the financial markets on wall street. I mean, you've got quants. Right? It surprised a lot of people. Yeah. yeah but not yeah. only that, but I think when I, when I thought my first thought was, I can't believe he said that. My second thought was no, actually I can believe it. I, you know, I'd worked in the Trump administration. I realized that there was a, a little bit of a, of a lack of connective tissue between the different org you know, organizations and agencies to coordinate policy. And I say that because Michael Kratzios at the office of science technology policy has actually done a fairly nice, aggressive job, of seeking to put out information on our autonomous future or artificial intelligence, coordinate that with others. It's, it's, uh, I think along with the three examples you just gave for any organization, that's such a competitive strength is if you can align internally and make sure everyone's speaking from the same sheet of music and then now go public that, uh, you're much better off and you, and you avoid, circumstances like that where you say something like artificial intelligence being a 50 to hundred year problem when I think it's pretty obvious that it's, it's playing out around us right now. Uh, okay. So time for one last question. And, 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 that is, you are a specialist in this field. You've been thinking about the future for years. You've, uh, you teach about it. What's the one question I didn't ask you that you think would be important for the listeners to know?
1: Ha. Huh. Um, I'm going to not answer with the um, specialist side, but uh, on the, the world building side of it. And the, uh, why is it that this impact of world... Sorry, we'll, we'll edit this, so we'll go sure. back. Um, I'm going to answer with the, a question around the why of all of this. Or why use fiction? To explain real world issues. What is it about fiction that makes it so effective? Uh, and what we've discovered is there's basically three layers to the utility of narrative. And you know, you and I are guys who've worked in you know, the nonfiction, uh, the military side, the world of memos and briefs and white papers and PowerPoints. And you know, oh, by the way, you know, that cuts across all of business. And yet, What the research shows is um, simply put, narrative can be equal or in some cases a more powerful tool for three reasons. The first is our brains are wired to take in complex ideas through narrative in a more effective manner than any other means of communication. And it makes you know perfect sense. The, The research on this is looking into what they call synthetic environments. But you know, the short of it is basically we were using narrative as a communication tool all the way back to when we were in caves versus um a powerpoint it's 30 years old so our brains are literally wired to take in narrative Um, actually the data shows that you know at leader levels whether it's you know white house cabinet meetings or fortune 500 um c-suite that they constantly reference narrative far more than even the most what are considered important academic sources. So one, our brains are wired to take in complex ideas that way. Two, narrative hits emotion, and emotion is what spurs action. Uh, And, you know, I don't have to kind of unpack that, but, you know, the the personal experience we had with this was um, a Navy admiral, you know, described, uh, you know, why they launched an investigation of something is that we hit their quote nightmare scenario. Literally, it's a thing that kind of gave them nightmares. Once like, it was just, oh, the bad, it was like, oh my God, I don't want this to ha- happen to my organization. It hit that emotion of fear, right? So um, narrative strikes emotion, emotion strikes action. And then the third thing, the third attribute of narrative is, um, you might think of it as virality. Uh, to put it simply, we don't just enjoy a narrative when we enjoy it we want to share it with other people because we connect across it. You know, why did they tell stories in the cave? It was everybody gathered around the fire. The same thing. When you read a good book, you want to tell other people about it. When we meet someone relatively new or we're connecting to them, we're like, you know, we want to find out there, you know, did you see a good movie recently? Or um, you're going on vacation. Uh, Oh, you ought to read this. And so, what we've tried to do is say, okay, we're not replacing the white paper. We're not replacing the PowerPoint, but this can be a supplement to it. And you can use useful fiction for almost any problem set. You know, we've used it looking at the future of war. We've used it looking at AI in other situations. We've seen it applied to healthcare. It's an incredibly, you know, useful tool that I don't think we make uh, enough use of And that's one of the things that that August and I, um, you know, the underlying goal of of Burn-In, one was to give people a great story, was to teach about issues of AI and the like, but also it was a proof case of, hey, can you actually do this in a designed and deliberate manner? And so far, it seems to be the case. You know, the book's only been out a couple of months, and yet, um, you know, we've been asked to, you know, obviously talking with you and your audience, but... We've given briefs on the novel to groups that range from senators to the head of um, multiple uh, U.S. military and allied military services to a group of venture capitalists. And, you know, again, pull back on that. It's a novel, but it's because it's a novel that combines the attributes of nonfiction. So um, that's been really exciting. But I also think it's a it's a it's a tool that can be applied to a lot of listeners problems out there. Uh, and so, you know, again, that's why I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and them about it.
0: Yeah. I'm chuckling thinking, uh, I may have left the Navy a few years too soon. Now that your and August technique has taken off. I could just imagine briefing a, uh, like a strike route using a story. So it's like story time before you go fly vice, actually, uh, a point by point briefing, but all, uh, all joking. It's the army
1: changed its, its captain's training. Uh, that at the start of they were they were they were told actually the the leader of it was told to quote ghost fleet it up, uh, and what it is is now at the startup when you're building a, right. a memorandum a case yeah. begin with a scenario a little man. story of of the why drop them in the scene and then get to the classic argument and the combination of the two is more powerful than each operating independently.
0: Yeah, and that, and uh, just so you, again positive reinforcement for you and for your technique. That's exactly how Top Gun instructors handle every major lecture that's given. The first 30 seconds to a minute uh, almost automatically is a historical anecdote. It's a story. It's something with full color slides, no words. You just basically draw the listener in to get them excited about the subject material. And then you introduce yourself and you're off and running with, what it is you want to teach, but it's that first critical few moments where you want to draw someone in and because everyone does it, right? It's just an automatic decision of, I'm either going to be engaged and real excited about this, or I'm going to start tuning out and zoning out of the subject. So uh, I think you guys have hit on a, obviously a fantastic vehicle for doing that. So Peter Singer, uh, thanks very much for spending your time with us. Peter is a strategist at New America. He's a professor of practice at Arizona State University. He's been described as the Wall Street Journal as the premier futurist in national security and environment. And he's the author of multiple books, uh, some of which, like we've seen, the novels Ghost Fleet and Burn-In, but also some, uh, some nonfiction as well, like Corporate Warriors, Children at War, and Wired for War. So, Peter, thank you very much for spending some time with us. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Holding the Line, in this case with author Peter Singer. Looking forward to next week's conversation. We've got several more teed up for you in the coming weeks to continue to explore the themes of autonomy and cyber and where innovation is taking us, not only in the greater American society, but specifically how it's going to impact national security as we move into the coming years and decades. With that being said, please take a second, go ahead and give a five-star review to the podcast, leave a comment, love reading those. And until then, have a great week.